diving sensation. But by last Monday, Tom Daly, only 14 years of age, had failed to make the splash that he'd wished to make. With his senior partner, Blake Aldrich, he finished a disappointing last place in the 10-meter synchronized diving event. And it wasn't just synchronization off the boards, which was the problem. Apparently, Daly and his partner were just as far apart beyond the pool. Following their 10th place finish, Aldrich publicly criticized his younger colleague. He's over-nervous, Aldrich bemoaned. He was worrying about everyone and everything. And that, to me, is the sole reason why he didn't perform. Daly, on the other hand, was equally less than impressed with Aldrich's professionalism, not least him phoning his mother during an interval between Olympic dives. As you can imagine, the newspapers had a field day with this. Daly and Aldridge out of sync in Olympic diving. Another live and let dive. Still another quipped belly strop. And as you can imagine too, there are now huge question marks over whether this pair will continue to dive as a team. Rob Daly, who is the father of Tom Daly, is for one sceptical. He said, it's not exactly team spirit to start running your partner down. When Tom hears about this and reads the stories, I don't suppose he'll want to dive with him again. You know, in any team, and this goes without saying, I suppose, Unity is vital. I suppose in a synchronized diving team, it's very vital. And yet, as that story reminds us, it's amazing how quickly a unified team can become unraveled. It's amazing how fast the unity can shatter. Previous synchronization, however close, is no guarantee of ongoing harmony. Someone who was aware of the fragile nature of unity was the Apostle Paul. In our New Testament, Paul wrote to a church in a place called Philippi. And he preemptively warned them about the dangers of disunity. He reminded them of the utter importance of unity in the church. In God's providence, what Paul wrote is also for our consideration this morning. As we ask ourselves a question as a church, are we in fact Charlotte Chapel United? Are we a unified front as a church on this 200th anniversary year? Let's hear what God would say to us about this. Our reading is found in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. And if you take a Bible from the pew, you can read along as we study the first five verses of Philippians 2. Here's what God says to us about unity through the Apostle Paul via the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2. 
Verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Amen. As I've been considering this passage in recent days, there's come to my attention several important lessons, lessons which Paul is keen to impress upon the Philippian church. Lessons about this whole matter of church unity. I believe that if we learn these lessons, we, like the Philippians, will be set upon the right track in becoming an increasingly unified church in the days and weeks and months and years that lie ahead. So, let's plunge right in. And there are six lessons this morning, so you'll need to be on your toes. We're going to move quite quickly. And the first lesson is this. Church unity must be our constant concern. Church unity must be our constant concern. Whether our church is the most tightly knit group of people on the face of the planet, or whether our church is falling apart at the seams, unity must always be preached Unity must always be important. Unity must always be a top priority. Now, we glean this lesson from the simple fact that Paul exhorts the Philippian church about unity. He preaches unity to a church which, as far as we can tell, was hardly bedeviled with discord, was not awash in a sea of strife. Now you can contrast this to what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church was a far cry from the Philippian church. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, his tone and his content is a different story. Paul plainly identifies in Corinth the friction which was rampant throughout the church. I appeal to you, brothers. It's almost the first thing he says to them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you. And then Paul quickly adds that he has hard intelligence that there are, in fact, divisions in Corinth. My brothers, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And yet, this kind of hard tone, this kind of specific information is lacking in the letter of Philippians. True, Paul does exhort this church towards unity. 
But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul does this in entirely positive terms. He speaks about unity, not disunity. And notably, he does not relay any specific report of widespread wrangling. Philippi was no Corinth. Only in chapter 4 and in passing does Paul mention two individual members who were having a squabble. And even as Paul, in his own apostolic way, bangs their two heads together, uh, he doesn't imply that this is more than a localized issue. Now, here's the significance of this first lesson. If Paul writes about unity to a church which, as far as we can tell, was largely unified, then disunity must always be a potential threat to the church. And unity must be our constant concern. Even if, like Philippi, we have a good track record. Even if, like Philippi, we're a gospel-centered church. Even the most united church has a divisive potential. A bit like a volcano, you know. It can be sitting latent for 200, 300 years. Doesn't mean it's not going to erupt. Church unity, first lesson, must be our constant concern. That's just to keep you listening from the context. Second lesson, church unity demands our conscious reflection of God's union with us. Church unity demands our conscious and intentional reflection of God's union with us. Paul makes this point in verses 1 and 2 and their connection to each other. In verse 1, Paul describes the vertical relationship which God has with us. And then in verse 2, he says, we should reflect God's relationship with us in our relationships with each other. So, let's take these a step at a time. To begin with, Paul reminds them of God's unity with them. In verse 1, he says that Christians are united with Christ and they have fellowship with the Spirit. They're united to Christ and they have fellowship with the Spirit. And this cause has some wonderful effects. He mentions there the receiving of Christ's love and the tenderness and compassion of God. And we experience these things, don't miss this, because we are united to Christ and because we are in fellowship with the Spirit. Now ponder that for just a moment before we go further. If you are a Christian, doesn't that blow your mind this morning? Doesn't that stagger you to think about who you are, for me to think about who I am, with all of my feelings and all of my foibles, to think that every day God, in all his holiness, deigns and desires to live in unity with me. Christ is united to me. The Spirit is in fellowship with me in an unbroken fashion every day. It's profound. But this should have an implication. Because Paul goes on to say 
if God has showered down this rich relationship upon your head, then this should spill over. The river should burst its banks. And you should live in free, unbounded, unfettered relationship with your other Christians. Notice this connection in logic. The link words between verses 1 and 2. If comes four times in verse 1. And then in verse 2. So there's a logical connection. If this is true, verse 1, then this must be true. So Paul is saying, if God chooses every day to live in unbroken union with you, then you must live in unbroken relationship with other Christians. The basis of our unity as a church is God's unity with us. You know, several times in my Christian life, and maybe you've had a similar experience, I've been on the receiving end of a difficult situation, and I've wondered perhaps if I could forgive another Christian. Wondered that. And the one thing, sometimes the only thing that has enabled me in those moments is to remember this thought. God has forgiven infinitely more sin in the totality of my life than this person's one sin. God has overcome insurmountable barriers to have a relationship with me. How dare I resurrect barriers between myself and another Christian who is asking for my forgiveness and wanting my fellowship? You see, unity with others is a conscious reflection of God's unity with us. Third lesson, and this may seem a little tangential, Church leaders bring, uh, church unity brings special joy to church leaders. Church unity brings special joy to church leaders. Now, this is really, I think, a surprise in the passage. Because by this point, you might think, well, Paul has surely nailed the motivation to unity. That's what these three observations are all about. He's trying to motivate us towards unity, and then he's going to talk practically about unity. Paul's already shown by the very fact that he writes to the Philippians about unity, that it is always important. And then he's given this wonderful logical and theological argument to prove it so. Why does Paul have to insert this little phrase? At the beginning of verse 2, Then make my joy complete. Literally, fill my joy to the brim, he says, by being united together. Why does he say this? Very brief point here. Paul had such a strong, deep, rich relationship as a leader with the Philippians that saying this carried weight. He had founded this church. He loved them. They loved him. He served them. They respected him. And so Paul knows that adding this, you know, it would also thrill my soul. Forget the theology for a moment. It would please my heart to see you united together. He knew that would carry clout. Now, I suppose this might be a challenge in our anti-authority culture just to all church members in following our leaders and in seeking to bring joy to them. I hope that you do want to bring joy to those who are over you in the Lord. 
But I think preeminently, this is actually a challenge to leaders, this little point. Are you the kind of leader, if you are a leader, whose relationships with others, those you lead, is so strong, so deep, so rich, so personal, that you could say something like this and know that it would carry some clout? Don't just be united because of theological truth, but because... It would thrill my heart to see you united with that brother, that sister. Fourth observation. And the first three have been mainly motivational. The latter three are more practical. Fourth lesson. Church unity involves oneness of disposition and direction. It involves oneness of disposition and direction. Now, Here we're getting to the heart of what unity is. Paul here is really defining unity. And here's what he says. Unity is being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Isn't that a lovely definition of unity? I think we can boil it down by saying this. Unity involves sharing the same disposition. That is, the same affections, the same attitude, the same love, this is a heart thing, and the same direction, that is, the same goals, the same ultimate ends. Now, little parenthesis here, this therefore means that unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity, by this definition, it doesn't mean sharing all the same preferences with everyone else, liking all the same music as everyone else, having all the same opinions as everyone else. Paul isn't speaking about an automated unity. But what he does say, however, is that we must be united in two ways. First, in our love, and second, in our longing. Having the same love. That means, I think, that even at times when I disagree with another brother or sister, they and I should be able to hear the heartbeat of Christ's love from one another, even in that situation. Now, that's not an easy thing, is it? That's not easy when you're at odds with someone over something. And in fact, it's a higher bar, isn't it? Because we can have a nice calm face and we can even have a cool tone. But it's another thing to have the pounding heartbeat of Christ's love instead of the resentment and the bitterness and the sin that so easily can be going on in here. In certain situations, we may be right about the problem at hand, but our heart might be all wrong toward the other person. And God is more concerned that our heart is wrong and our love is lacking. Having the same love. And then Paul also says, unity means having the same purpose or the same mind. The same goal. And Paul here is not speaking in any small sense. I think he's talking here about ultimate purpose and ultimate goals. Over in the letter to the Ephesians, Paul defines this great purpose that every Christian shares. It's actually a purpose that we as Christians share with God himself. That purpose to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment. Ephesians 1.9 And here is the purpose. To bring all things 
in heaven and on earth, together under one head, even Christ. Isn't this ironic to remember this when you're having friction with somebody else, another Christian? God's ultimate purpose is to unify everything. It's unity. Isn't it sobering also to remember that whatever differences you have with someone who's a Christian, that you actually share the bigger picture? You have the same longing for the coming of Christ and the enthronement of Christ and the rulership of Christ. What is often said at the end of victory speeches on election day is also true of Christians. There's a lot more that unites us than divides us. We share the same purpose as well as the same love. Let's remember these things. Let's remember these things next time we're thinking about throwing a rock. Let's remember these things before perhaps a necessary confrontation. Because sometimes Christian confrontation is necessary and it is right. But it must be in Christ's love and in view of Christ's coming. That bigger picture is always the context. Now, someone might be saying, well, if this is what unity is, it doesn't sound that hard. If unity is merely a common love and common longing, well, I can certainly live with unity in those terms. But before you underestimate the challenge, Paul reminds us that human sin has a way of clouding the rays of God's clear instructions. This is why Paul spends verses 3 and 4 addressing two possible roadblocks on the road to unity. So this is lesson 5. Church unity requires the shunning of pride and selfishness. Church unity requires the shunning of pride and selfishness. There are two huge threats to unity, says Paul. First, do nothing out of selfish ambition, verse 3. Verse 4, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Threat number one is selfishness. It's not hard to imagine how selfishness undermines unity and harmony, is it? When I'm selfish, I only look out for number one, and no one else is given consideration. You won't keep many friends with that. You won't have many friends on Facebook if you're like that. Additionally, Paul adds a second potential roadblock. He says, and do nothing out of vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, verse 3. So, threat number two is pride, which must also be shunned. Again, it's not hard to imagine how pride might be detrimental to our unity. Pride is not so much failing to consider others as much as it is looking down upon others. Not thinking anything much of others. Not that we ignore people totally. We just see ourselves as two cuts above them. And it's reflected in the way we interact with people. And Paul is plain that this pride, along with selfishness, these two sins must be shunned for unity to take place. See, as we come this week, I trust to God in our prayers. 
And as we plead with God about making us a more united church, we must pray hand in hand for the subduing of our selfishness and the belittling of our pride. There's no point in praying for one without the other. Because in a church, we are the problem, the unity. Our hearts are the problem. And so we must work at these things and pray to God about them. Reminds me of this whole issue. It kept coming to my mind as I was thinking about this. The great story about James and John. You remember the two close followers of Jesus? And on one occasion, remember, they came to Jesus full of pride and selfishness. And they asked for the best seats in the great wedding banquet. They said, Jesus, you know, when you take up your throne and they have the great feast to celebrate, give us the left and the right seat, the two most important places. And what's interesting, if you read that account, is that their selfish pride immediately disrupted unity in the group. Now, some people say this is because the other disciples, you know, uh, wanted the seats for themselves and they just wished they'd got in there first. Well, that's possible, but it's not explicitly said in the passage. It may well just be that they abhorred the obvious pride and selfishness of these disciples. And it disrupted unity in the church, in the group. You know, whenever I read that story, uh, a thought usually comes to my head straight away. I think I would never have asked for that. And then a few seconds later, a second thought always comes to me. That's pride talking. I probably would have asked for that. Aren't we just, aren't we just as capable of selfish pride as James and John? Robert Raines, a poet, has penned some challenging lines on this subject. Listen to this. I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me. How they can further my program. Feed my ego. Satisfy my needs. Give me a strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank checks for whatever I want. I am like James and John. A united church shuns selfishness and pride. It is essential. Sixth and last observation. Church unity demands that we follow the humble example of Christ. Church unity demands the following of Christ's humble example. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Do you want us to remain Charlotte Chapel United in the churches that you come from? Do you want to be a united church? Here's how you do it. Simply apply verse 5 of Philippians chapter 2. You forget anything else. Apply this verse. Have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Because Jesus' attitude, listen, it was conducive to unity. There was no pride 
There was no selfishness about him. He was the opposite of these things, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. You know, while we are in the grand scheme of things, not much, and yet we grasp for the heavens, Jesus was in the grand scheme of things something. He was someone great. He was God himself. But he didn't clutch for greatness. And he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. But we seek heights higher than our station. Jesus lowered himself far below his station. He became human. He became a servant. He became nothing. You want to know what nothing looks like? He became obedient to death, even to death, on a cross. Jesus was crucified. That's how humble, how unselfish he was. Jesus could have come into a disrupted world and further divided it. He could have come in and judged us to oblivion, but Jesus came to conciliate and to reconcile us to God. He came to remove that barrier between us and God, which is our sin. And when he died on that cross, he died there in our place. He paid the price for our sin. And he removed that barrier so that this morning, there is a potential for everyone here to have that unbroken fellowship with God. I wonder today whether you have that. There's no use solving all your horizontal relationships in life if in death, your problem with God isn't solved. Jesus came into our divided world to bring conciliation. And for those of us who know that unbroken fellowship with God, I wonder today, are we mirroring in the horizontal what we're experiencing in the vertical? Even a united church has the potential to be divisive. God, keep us from that. God, make us one in Christ Jesus. God give us a greater synchronization than even the parallel Olympic diving team. Let's pray for that.